there was a time where we used to send letters to people and we will print, you know, their first name and last name to mails, to SMS, to notification, to social network feeds, to live, to the multiplicity of the ways people want to be engaged and the difference in the way they want to be entertained and introduced to brands and introduced to products is changing so fast. That's, I think the flexibility in the mind and the flexibility in skills is truly essential. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to the one-to-one consumer marketing podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Axel Adida, Chief Digital Officer at Biosdorf. Biosdorf has been nurturing skin and trust for over 140 years, establishing itself as a global authority in skincare of core brands like Ivere. With 20,000 employees across more than 160 locations, they're one of the leaders globally. Axel, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Max, for having me. Very excited to chat, Axel. But before we get started, can you share a bit more about your path and what led you to your role as the chief digital officer? Well, you know, I raised my hat to chance. One day I, I received a phone call which said, you know, would you be interested in joining Nivea in Hamburg and maybe a little bit more, you know, Eucerine, La Prairie to, you know, change the digital inflection of Biosdorf. And I went like, yes, you know. That's a call you don't often receive and you can hardly say no. Actually, you don't. You say yes and you move on to Hamburg, practice your German and embrace the brands and skincare, which are magnificent. But what drove me to receiving this phone call is largely chance. As a child, I was lucky enough at eight years old to be invited to a, a search training. So, you know, so much from the 20th century is that at the time, those were mainframes and the computer screens were green. And you actually wrote a little bit of nearly code to actually search a database. A little bit of, you know, the French efforts to run MIT Media Lab with the Centre Français de l'Informatique, where you could access computers and everything, and then you get hooked up. And it's a natural trend that your first letters and your first jobs go to technology data at the time, which was a fairly new topic in the 90s, having the first computer passing a terabyte was like an emotion. Now people get that, you know, if the telephone doesn't do a terabyte, but at the time it was the biggest computer around. And data, consumer relationship management, customer relationship management, the very big era of emails and SMS, you know, which now is a bit passé. And then a move into beauty and startups with social network, open source, creating a couple of startups failing a couple, investing in many startups, losing quite a few and winning quite a few, and joining L'Oréal, which is also a fantastic group, to accelerate in digital at the turn of the 2014. And very important seminal moment in the digital era, because you have the first really constructed social networks and video network by the turn of the 2000s, first YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. And then you start to have elaborate smartphones. And the moments where all of this coalesces in a very big change in people behavior is the mid-2010s, where everybody has a telephone, your children have a telephone, roaming to social network to actually get your information and get to know lifestyle, skincare, and beauty become a prevalent behavior. And that's the one thing, you know, long stint at L'Oréal, 
And when the opportunity arose, I joined a few friends at BCG to spread the word. Precision marketing, how do you get marketing to be more relevant to each of us, to be more targeting in the way we buy advertising in the platform? So we avoid, for instance, you know, probably, you know, there's a good chance that you use sometimes makeup, but there's also a very good chance that you don't. And maybe if you're not the person I would like to advertise for makeup, if you show no interest or no passion for beauty. And typically that makes a big difference. That's a big difference with TV is addressing people in a way that you're more relevant to their behaviors. And spreading that out to all the fast-moving consumer good business from, you know, beverages to food to cars. And when I received the call from Biosdorf, I say, here I am, Germany. I'm, I'm so happy to be on uh, Team Germany and Team Biosdorf. The brands have such a long-lasting history. When I was a kid, you know, they were, you know, the most seminal ads you could see on TV were Nivea. You know, it's like a, a Madeleine de Proust, you know, it's a memory that comes back very early. And, you know, having the chance to pass the talk to millennials and Gen Z and people who discover the brands and products is truly amazing. You can imagine it's super impressive. So you have been very close to the technology and computers, databases in early age. You have been an angel investor along the way. You've been at the other side, basically on the consultancy with BCG, you've been with L'Oreal, and now you are Biostop. That's a very, I would say, broad knowledge you have seeded from very, very different, different angles. I think that's a very interesting profile for you. Is that also what is important these days for chief digital officer to have that very broad knowledge? Or how is the role for you when you perceive that as a CDO? How is that? Do you think that's necessary? Or how do we think about that? Well, we all start somewhere, you know, and, and so there's, <laughs> there's a first step that you have when you enter your career. Well, I think, you know, the best recommendation I, I have to um, the younger professionals that come and have a chat with me is to find a base where you develop like a very strong skill set, you know, be it data, being Google Analytics, be it SEO, be it content, being branding. And then, you know, I think it's a formidable chance in that field to have the opportunity of changing the angles that you're going to learn on a periodic basis. And also, I think the main reason is because people change. Um, in the course of my career, I shifted the way I engage with consumers from physical mail. You know, there was a time where we used to send letters to people and we will print, you know, their first name and last name to mails, to SMS, to notification, to social network feeds, to live, to, you know, the, the multiplicity of the ways people want to be engaged and the difference in the way they want to be entertained and introduced to brands and introduced to products in changing so fast. I think the flexibility in the mind and the flexibility in skills is truly essential. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with that. If you look at the changes over, the, I would say, the last two years, you mentioned, you know, personalization back then was to put first name and last name to make sure that they receive physical mail. How you look at the changes in digital and personalization today, what's for you here top of mind? I think the most salient phenomenon that we have in, in the past couple of years is the rise of advocacy and influence. So funny enough, I think, you know, it's a lot of self-select personalization 
first you select people that you like, or you decide to watch content that resonates with you, your opinion, your sensitivity, your interests. And also then the algorithm and the platforms reinforce those preferences and come back with stuff that you have a chance to like. So I think what's interesting is at one point, you know, there was this perception that people would expect a lot of personalization in everything. Well, surprisingly enough, on occasion, people personalize shoes, but all the oldies are black. And usually, you know, they have the same setup for options. However, the one place that has exploded in terms of preferences and opinions and angles and tone of voice is content. And then the place has made a very new place in the ecosystem to social networks, which are really at, you know, the crossroads between the content creators on the one side and people and consumers on the, on the other side. And this matching is really something which is phenomenal. What's very interesting is, you know, every time I have the chance to speak with kids, teenagers, you know, one of the questions is, which brand do you like? And how did you come to learn about it? And very funny. A lot of it is going to be, I learned about it on TikTok, I learned about it on Instagram. Well, probably people on the higher echelon of uh, the age groups are going to learn about it on Facebook. And everybody in a very different way learns about it on YouTube. Since the last time you wanted to repair something in your house, like plumbing or something, usually the three things to buy at Ubi next door, you learned about it on YouTube, which is your prime destination for edutainment. And I think this one, in terms of consumer behavior and change, is a very, very salient feature of the mid-220s. Interesting. Then, so what he's saying is, and correct me if I got this the wrong way, he's saying that the, how fast the consumer preferences are currently changing, that's the main driver for change on the brand side, on the technology side. Do I get that right? I think the one thing on the technology side is... Is it all driven by technologies that you buy as a brand? Or is it driven by technologies which are mastered by the media where you advertise? And I think a lot of the balance has turned to the media. Meta is a technology powerhouse. TikTok is a technology powerhouse. Google is a technology powerhouse. And a lot of the data stay inside those ecosystems. You know, some talk about wall gardens, but it's not walled for no reason. You know, consumers only request, you know, that their data is not being shared with everybody. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't like people to know what are my media preferences. I trust Google in as much Google doesn't share it with anyone. Yes, I can be advertised based on my preferences, but I, ho I hope you won't give it to any brand, to any people in the market and trade it like if it was a commodity. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorites when I hear somewhere that Meta is or Google is Selling personal data, that's, you know, one of my favorites. No, that's, <laughs> that's definitely not what they're doing. It's a complete misconception of that, even though I read it constantly, even in every credible newspaper, everything like that is always new. They are selling data. No, that's not what they're doing, right? So, but, but it's still, there's, a, there's probably a huge misconception about that because I agree as a consumer, I don't want to sell my data to that and they don't do that. I stay inside it. And, you know, with good reason, who would want to sell the golden goose? You know, the golden goose feeds you every month with advertising and mm -hmm. with the ability of channeling, you know, ads which are more congruent to people's preferences. Mm -hmm. Why would you sell that? And also, if you start sharing it outside, the covenant of trust 
that exist between the networks and their users would be quite in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Speaking, you know, of data and consumer data, obviously consumer data is also for you as you oversee several different brands, right? Nadia or Nadia, just one of them, but there are a few others. How do you think about data? And maybe in particular, we have in September, we have the cookie deprecation where a lot of brands are struggling with because they so far were using this for customer insights and so on. How do you look at 2024 and the changes that are coming here as someone that is overseeing quite a few different skincare brands? I think that's quite an interesting topic. I do trust that, you know, we need to embrace the future because this is a place where we will all live. And, you know, in as much we regret the past, you know, it's very unlikely that it comes back a second time. You know, a couple of years ago, there was all this craze about having first-party data. And the best way people found out to get this first-party data, mostly emails, nothing more fancy, mm -hmm. was to actually send people emails. Mm -hmm. But how many emails are you willing to receive in your inbox? You know, what's your tolerance? What do you want to read? What are the things that are going to be educational? Which are the ones you want to have for a while or not? And where do you want to be entertained in the social networks? And I think one phenomenon that we all individually experience is, you know, our email boxes are overblown. I know nearly no one that tells me, I wish I had 20 more newsletters. I, I meet people mm -hmm. who tell me I want to unsubscribe to a few stuff because, it, you know, it's covering my emails, which are important, with like commercial stuff. Some people that 20 years ago would have loved to read the number of the Tesco points or you know, their loyalty programs on, on the emails. So it's a big shift in attitudes and the way people want to be entertained. And the question, what do you want to receive passively in your email? And what do you want to experience more actively or semi-actively in social networks and video networks? And I think the shift is very strong. So cookie deprecation right now doesn't entirely equate, you know, the end of having relevant ads, you know, to what are your content preferences. Right now, people still watch ads that are quite congruent with the rest of the content they find or the brands they're passionate about. If you're a sports fan, there is still a good chance that the ads that you see on social networks are about sports and because you're also more responsive. So I think the one thing that it takes away is the impression that data is a patrimony. You know, it's something that you own and that, you know, which is, you know, like um, gold that you're going to extract money, not consumer data. We just are custodians and consumer are very fluid. But on the other side, what has changed is a lot of signals are becoming really important. What are the campaigns people like to see? Do people like some buttons better in green or in blue? Which is the best way, you know, to showcase a product or demonstration in an ad? What needs to come first? What needs to come second? And I think, you know, we are moving to a more fluid approach of data where the ones who make it big in the marketing business are the ones that are able to embrace multifaceted signals of consumer behaviors. And that's more, I think, where I would place the competition edge right now. Exactly. So signals from different different angles or aggregating this in a, in a better way, right? So I can just, you know, guess, but offline, online different areas. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Is that also how you 
focus yourself currently that you're saying, okay, that's, that is my priority where I want to go more, invest more time, invest more money in. When you look at getting more signals or getting diverse signals from consumers to tailor your advertising, tailor your communication and so on. Is that, is that your priority currently? Yes. And it's a two-way street. I think on the one side, it's about having a very robust and simple technology stack across the world. You know, mm -hmm. never before did we have networks that were between 1 billion and 3 billion subscribers. You know, when I was a kid, you know, the biggest TV channel was China TV. <laughs> so it had a lot of advertising at the time. But even in the US, you, you had channels which were limited to one country. Now you have channels that cover the world. So I think this one to play with the very big social networks and video networks, it's really about having the right technology set up and teams which are really skilled at mastering the content that you need to put on it and the way you bind, the way you engage consumer in satisfactory journey, so that they discover the product, they discover the brand, you know, and they get passionate about it. And on the other side, you know, there's all the efficiency and it's capturing all those multiple signals. Where are consumers, you know, which influencers are going to drive sales and which messages actually work a little less. And that's how you perfect a little bit your magic recipe as a brand to be able to find your edge. So on the one side, perfect execution. And on the other side, you know, having the breadth of understanding of the marketplace and consumers to find uniqueness. Isn't it? Because you're describing this, we have now these global platforms with, you know, billions of users. So Biostove is in, in 160 countries with also, if I read this correctly, I think you even have to adjust your, your products to different climates, for example. And how do you, I mean, you probably can segment by country, but how do you do then segmentation? Because you are a global brand in 160 countries. You have this mega platforms. How do you think about, you know, segmentation and having slightly different messaging to, to different audiences? Because that seemed like an undoable <laughs> task. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, which has been a major trend that we're embracing is diversity. You know, the skin types that we care for yeah. are very diverse, you know, yeah. from Asia, mm -hmm. India, uh, Europe, you know, countries in Africa and South America with very, very different skin types. So I think part of it is making sure, you know, when the portfolio is being developed is that we care for very specific needs and, and expectations. So really to a degree, there's a very important need to understand, you know, what are the specifics, what are the expectations? And sometimes, you know, the trends travel. You know, some mm -hmm. trends that you see uh, starting in Korea are going to land somewhere in uh, Asia and in Europe at some point. And sometimes it's a country. And so I, I think, you know, the greatest muscle that needs to be exercised is curiosity. You know, how do you bring together the consumer insight to have the breadth of knowledge to understand what's going to work best to serve people and to meet, you know, interest and clicks our hot buttons. Mm -hmm. Are the markets for you fairly decentralized or is it more like centralized? Because I think what you were describing, I don't know, skincare trends in Korea 
is that then reaching the global stage or is it not reaching the global stage? And it's a little like, I don't know, a Netflix that tries to get Squid Games that makes it a global <laughs> success or not, right? So I think we had some hits from Germany that became a global hit. But I think at the beginning, everyone was always wondering, is it possible to do you know localized stuff to the global stage? And you, you're seeing that, but how do you organize that? If, is it decentralized? Is it, is it central? How does it work for you? Well, you know, I think the first thing is for a long time, skincare products and creams have been traveling easier than movies, you know, uh, <laughs> you know and, and you found Nivea tins for a long time all across the globe, whilst, you know, the passion for local cinemas has been ramping up with a little time. So I think it's, it's a very long trend that people, you know, they want to share a lot of the magic that you have in the skin expertise and the skin science and Germany as a very long-standing tradition to build actually the skin science and products. And I think that's a very strong asset that our brand have. They come out with like a century of expertise in caring for skin. And this is also something which has a global outreach. And then the reasons to buy products and the skin sensitivities are a bit more different. You know, I was lucky to um, discuss today with a partner who's also a consumer for our anti-pigment, you know, luminous mm -hmm. U630 range. And she told me, yeah, you know, I, I come from Southern country and my skin is more prone to have stains. And one of my friends told me it's a big deal and word of mouth. And since then I took about it to everybody. I'm not sure she did a, a couple of TikTok video, but this, for instance, is a very significant trend that's ramping up today. It's really uh, a need that people have. And when they click, they click about it globally. And they will click for different reasons. Some other people click because, you know, after having children, it's also something that triggers a little bit of changes in pigmentation. And that's also something your people get massively interested. I think, you know, what you're saying is you're also driving to another question. If you have another trend, the passion for people for edutainment is very strong. Isn't it? You know, the desire to understand, you know, why is cream efficient? You know, why does the stain go away? How long does it take? How did it work for people who are like me or unlike me? And what is the thing that, you know, is going to help me to have a, a healthy skin? And specifically, when you talk with teenagers, it's very interesting how you build your body of understanding of what is skincare, what is the right routine. Should you wash your face with a soap or with a more gentle cleanser? Should you take away your makeup with soap or, you know, with a de-makeup product? You know, it's quite interesting. And all those social and video networks are very instrumental to help people build, you know, this knowledge. And it replaces a little bit the old-style word of mouth where your good friends or your mother or your grandmother would drive you into learning how skincare works. It still happens, especially when you need to take your mother to DM to actually pay the bill. But mm -hmm. it's also some things that you get from many places, and especially what's in fashion, what is new, what is different, what do the molecules and ingredients do? You're absolutely right. I've not thought about this, but my impression is also that skincare became a little bit of a, has seen a new hype, but also the science behind them has become very, very fashionable to know about this, to have different know, serums and then this cream and that cream and the skincare, not having a skincare routine these days is a problem. So I think you really should have one. And I think that's really quite new. If that is so drastically changing, 
And I think you're describing that, especially for the younger generation, which sees a, you know, some short video and that gets viral. And two days later, I don't know, a cream is completely sold out. How do you maintain, you know, brand loyalty in this kind of super dynamic environment? Yeah, there's two ways to look at skincare and beauty. One way you could say, you know, people are disloyal, you know, sometimes they buy another cream or they buy something else. There's another way to look at it, which is to find out, well, actually, when they like some products, they tend to buy them quite often, not exclusively, but quite often. It's surprisingly loyal. You know, people do actually come back to products which they find effective, where they do appreciate the texture, they do appreciate the scent, they do understand how it works, and it becomes part of a daily routine. And some other products, then you experience change or you're, you're sensitive also to novelty. And you try another one and then you come back to your old preference. And I think part of the beauty business is how do you make sure that the novelties and the modernity brings love and the appetite to, you know, come back to the same products every day. And I think that's the beauty of being a, a digital marketer is how you bring this freshness and make sure that you keep a constant interest in the brand and the product sets. Yeah, this freshness is, is probably important because you somehow have to convince each generation or every generation or parts of each and every generation for your product and then you hope to become part of the routines and then they buy and buy. Is there any chance for you to measure that? That, you know, you know, some, let's say Max became, is, you know, excited about Nivea and he's now buying that every two months he's buying a new tin. Is there any chance for you how to how to measure that? Do you know, I don't know, roughly how much people are constant buyers or one-time buyers? So the beauty about industries that relied on traditional distribution systems like DMs or Rossmann's or Sephora mm -hmm. is you get this information through panels. Nielsen being one of those, they provide you with this information on a monthly basis. But the more the world goes e-commerce, the less you know. And maybe in a couple of years, we'll find this information again. But right now, it remains, you know, an emerging channel where very focused on selling more, more, more. But you don't necessarily get the same feedbacks that you had in traditional distribution. So this one remains a very open and very interesting territory in the discussion with e-commerce partners. That's, I mean, especially for an idea, I think e-commerce is a very interesting topic because in the end, every e-commerce company has a, needs to increase their basket size, right? So have a proper basket size so it makes sense to ship, right? Because you have shipping costs and consumers have a very low tolerance for, you know, charging for the shipping. And I know you have the potential trouble of returns and all the kind of logistics that come around that. And um, how do you do that for a brand if you go to D2C and doing that because it feels to me it's, it's it's quite challenging and I know that a lot of retailers in the space naming Wasman or I think DM as well uh, they are quite reluctant to go into that area because they're saying first it's a headache and the second thing is if they come to the store it's better for us so how do you is that possible for buyer stuff to go D2C? Well, you know, there's two different questions. One of them is, you know, if you go to the US, for instance, Walmart, Target, or Amazon have become very significant players in the e-commerce space. And there's a chunk of the US population that get uh, home deliveries. And then you're totally right. You know, when you get a home delivery, which is working, which is safe, 
where you're used to getting your parcels at home for Amazon, well, you know, there is a very strong interest to expanding the stuff you buy on it to avoid having herons. And I think this one, you know, the big partnerships in Asia, you will find people like Shopee and Lazada doing the same or Mercado Libre mm -hmm. on, in South America. So did uh, you see the topic, but indirect is actually the enormous topic. People do have a relationship with retail and retail delivers door to door now. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's how you, that makes a ton of sense to do it this way. You know, from a technology point of view, because you have that extensive background in, in that, what are the three things you currently are most excited about from a technology's perspective? You know, I think right now, you know, a part of my heart is very passionate about all that's happening in the generative AI space. And one of the things is when I started my career, we tried to use neural networks, you know, like anti you know, artificial intelligence to do mathematics. It didn't work. And then people who really worked hard and who were very smart found out that with large language model, you know, expanding this could help you doing the mashup of text or translation and in a beautiful way. And right now, I think the more we get formats, the question is, how does generative AI help to do all this format transformations in a way which is a bit more seamless? Right now, it remains a very handy and very tedious process. And not only for text, but also for images and increasingly for moving images. And you know, you said we deliver, you know, in 160 countries. We're properly present in, in a little less. But nevertheless, translations are so many. So today you want to translate a page on your website. How do you translate in 70 pages with the right mentions and the right claims, which are, you know, completely okay for each country? That's something where Gen AI can make a very strong difference. At the same time, it's also very interesting to see how the players are moving in the space. One of my very good friends told me at lunch, you know, I'm experiencing Microsoft Copilot. And uh, so, oh God, it's it's actually doing the summary of my meetings in a very cool way. I, I said, oh God, can I have it too? And this, you find a, a bit of AI inside in many walks of the business. I think the, the second very strong interest that I have is how the technology platforms behind the media space are evolving. And yes, we see Google, we see Meta, and we see TikTok from a consumer angle, but they're also a massive interface for all advertisers. Mm -hmm. I think there's a question is, how is it evolving as what you mentioned, you know, cookie deprecation, but also an increasing part of AI in the activity. You know, what are the platform going to provide for the future? And last, I think the very strong topic is the rise of influence. You know, there's a, a very big activity on influence, which has been very local because influencers mm -hmm. are local language. So for a long time, agency would cater only for the Italians and sometimes mm -hmm. the Swiss and sometimes for the Americans and the Americans that speak Spanish. And that was the question is, how do you have the same kind of seamless technology across the world? And I think that's a very decisive moment for the industry where standards starts to emerge and the industry start to be equipped, you know, at the par of the importance of influencers for consumers.
That's a very interesting point because influencer marketing is still, when you look at the how efficient the other marketplaces in media work, still the world, <laughs> yeah. the, the wild west, right? So it's when is it, influencers become programmatically accessible? I think that's a very interesting question to ask, but I very much agree with you on Gen AI advancing and accelerating workflows in almost every part for sure and also interesting to see how how meta tiktok snapchat and so on are going to respond to providing those kind of tools to advertisers i've seen interesting announcements uh, from their last conferences but let's see what it means right is it just you know tooling that you also then have in adobe that they have somehow cheaper or for free in there as well or is it more advanced let's see let's see very very excited about that and you know it's a very interesting question that you ask you know is it a magic that you're going to find in your advertising platform or is it a magic that you're going to find in photoshop yes and um and also, I think, you know, what's interesting for AI is for a little while, there was like a wild moment where people believed that, you know, copyright would disappear with AI. Actually not. <laughs> so part of the question is also how people tie the knot on intellectual property. How do you ensure that the solution that you have is not only technologically sound, but it's also IP completely okay? And that's something that, um, you know, the industry is discovering, the advertisers are discovering, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, let's see the, the jury is, and it's literally a jury that is out on the New York Times and OpenAI, where I think that is a lose-lose situation for OpenAI, right? So if they, they botch basically and, and pay a higher price to New York Times, because we're negotiating before now, New York Times sued OpenAI for copyright infringement. If they bought and pay New York Times more, more and more publishers will come <laughs> to, to them and say, okay, we want to be paid as well. But if they lose so publicly against the New York Times, the same is happening. So a little bit of, let's see how, how Sam Altman is solving that. He has been a phenomenal CEO so far in that, but that's really a strategical challenge and a dilemma they are a little bit in but yeah, you're right i think that that's uh, on images as well that we will have quite a lot of discussions very very soon about that then you know it's interesting you know there's very long traditions that rights expire so for <laughs> instance you know if you wanted to train your ai on william shakespeare you know <laughs> it's completely fine you know um, william is not going to come back to see you you know it's completely free well, the problem is every text that you're going to have is going to sound like Henry V, you know, which is mm -hmm. probably not appropriate for skincare. And same for, for imagery. But also, you know, it, it reminds a moment in the industry where such a big effort was made to constitute data banks of images chargeable for rights. And there's quite a couple in the marketplace, you know, mm -hmm. where you can get your, your images, go and, and chop them, you know, and, and those are very central to the web economy. Many websites, you know, work on stock photos. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering what to those kind of business models going to happen. I know some of them started to embrace the change by also offering that kind of services. But let's see, it's cannibalizing the core business. Yeah, <laughs> let's see what's going to happen to that. I have another more personal question for you, and that is, what are your top three pieces of career advice. You know, you are a leader at a global consumer brand with a big C title. What kind of advice would you give 
your young you based on your career or what you what do you know now? I think it's a fantastic question. You know, when, if I look back, some of the things I, um, you know, I'm quite happy with in retrospect, some of us probably I would do it differently. But the one I would do the same is, you know, work with people that you find exceptionally bright and inspiring. Because you're going to come every morning, work is hard, work is tedious, not every day you will succeed in your endeavors. And if you do it in an environment where, you know, you're really inspired to emulate what your peers and bosses and younger selves are doing, you know, it's fantastic. And I think it's also something I also apply to myself. You know, sometimes I, I see a, an intern and I say, oh, God, the guy or, or the young woman, you know, came out with, you know, like a fantastic angle. I'm a bit jealous, you know, next time I'll do better. And that's fantastic because it, it maintains a form of freshness. The second thing I think developing in the digital marketing and digital space, hard skills is a fantastic asset. Not because they're an accomplishment on their own, but, you know, they help your brain to function in a more systemic manner, to approach problems in a more holistic way, and to find simple solutions. You know, the Google cookie cutter angle to really cut problems in a very simple way and come to a solution. And so hard skills are fantastic could be data, could be systems, could be programming, could be machine learning, could be media, or it could be very much technical skills on photography or artistry. But I think it's it's really strong to have a base. You know, I didn't choose data. Data chose me absolutely <laughs> randomly. You know, I, I answered, you know, a company at the time, Accenture, was on a TV show to, to, at eight o'clock, you know, for the news. Say so we have new offices which are open spaces and people can choose their desk. So I wrote a letter and said, do you want me? And three weeks afterwards, I was in the staff. And they said, oh, what about data? I said, I know nothing. Well, I said, it's not a problem, you know, just go work, you know. And I think this one is also great to do hard stuff, great to do technical stuff and not be shy about, you know, embracing topics that are really hard because with a lot of work, you're going to be really great at it. And I think the third one is having a curiosity, not only for technology, but also for people behavior, for organizations, for consumers, for teams. You know, it's fantastic, you know, when I look back at the past 25 years, how much behaviors have changed. You know, 25 years ago, people would connect, at the time they would say, to the internet with a telephone. You know, I don't know anybody who has a telephone. You know, you would have a phone line, you would plug it into a modem, you would connect to it. And at the time, if you could have, you know, teletext, it was fantastic. And right now you've moved to a place where you can have streaming of, you know, HD videos. So the, the change in the magnitude, in the delivery, in the quality, in the content, and the way we approach media is so strong. I mean, it's interesting to have a perspective on how it changes us, the advertising market, and also us as people, you know, I, there's a question I like to ask. And so I'll ask it to you. Could I take away your telephone for a month? My telephone for a month? A day is a challenge. So I would say a month is no way. I mean, it's quite funny. You know, once upon a time, you know, people would go on holidays to Venezuela and nobody would have a telephone. <laughs> and everybody found it fine. And now if you leave your fingers out of your telephone for a day, <laughs> after a day, you will show that you're missing something. 
you will be anguished. You know, your connectivity with the world will be jeopardized. So anthropologically, it's quite funny to see how a small piece of technology has changed us. You know, even at the time where people came out with Terminator, people believed that a cyborg was a sort of like robot with a human head inside or mischievous and malevolent AI. And actually what we get is a young guy with a telephone in its hand talking to an AI, which is not exactly the way we, we had looked at it. <laughs> but no, it, Arnold Schwarzenegger it, looked differently. <laughs> yeah. And it comes with marvelous things. You know, I do have a passion to play chess on chess.com with people nice. everywhere around the world, which is a very enticing passion. And I get crazy about Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. But then I needed to do a Quora detox. You know, if you're Quora or Reddit, you can really get into threads for days and mm -hmm. then say, what have I done with my day? You know, it's, uh, what about a book? <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you're right. But I think why I like your last point so much is because in the end, what you're describing is being curious and positive about humans and around you. And I think that's an attitude that is, if you have that, that makes life so much easier, right? So you, get, you look a lot around with open eyes and see, you know, what are people doing on their phones, right? So if they are sitting in the metro or what is interesting about this new behavior? And I think that, you know, leads to a new world or a different worldview, which is much more positive and open rather than, I don't know, being all the time annoyed about, about people because they behaving differently or because the metro is so crowded. It's always interesting to, to look around that. I like that. I like that a lot to see the world and also the changes of behavior with, with open eyes and also, you know, see them trying to understand rather than judge us. I, I like that a lot because it's a, it's a very positive world to you. So Axel, that's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, but that's all we have uh, time for to cover today. But before we wrap up, if people want to follow your journey, follow you, where should they go? Is that, is that LinkedIn? LinkedIn, or <laughs> LinkedIn is the best place. <laughs> uh, and it's the one network where I'm active. I do go on TikTok, on Facebook, on Insta, on YouTube for information. But if I'm active too much, you know, then I don't find enough time to work. So LinkedIn is yes. the best. Okay, LinkedIn is the best and chess.com. <laughs> All right, Axel, thank you so much fantastic. for taking the thank time. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic it, day. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.